Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Harbin Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, on every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. The situation in Wisconsin, this is absolutely a fascinating and b predictable back when scott walker was saying yeah let's give a billion dollars to foxconn or hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks foxconn of course is the chinese company that makes parts for iphones and they wanted to open a factory in the united states so that they could say oh yeah some of our stuff is made in the usa because, you know, Apple's getting pressure about making their stuff overseas. So, you know, one of the, if they're one of their suppliers, could make it in the U.S. And so Foxconn comes to uh, Scott Walker and says, uh, you know, give us a fortune. Give us a billion dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. And we'll build a factory here and we'll employ 13,000 people. Which is like $300,000 per job in state money that we're giving Foxconn to create jobs that'll pay, you know, what, maybe $40,000 a year? But still, they're, quote, manufacturing jobs. These are, quote, good jobs. And now Foxconn is saying, hey, you know, the agreement actually doesn't say that we had to create 13,000 jobs. That was just the news release that Donald Trump and Scott Walker quoted. But the agreement says that you have to pay us all, the, you have to give us all these tax breaks and give us all this money for decades, even if we don't build a factory. So instead, we're just going to build a little R&D unit. And we're just going to hire some people, maybe as many as a thousand, maybe not. So the question here, here we have another example. And this is, you know, certainly not the first. This has been going on in a huge way since the 1980s. Reagan actually promoted this kind of stuff. He thought competition among the states is a good thing. And so companies started playing this blackmail game, basically. I mean, probably the most famous example recently is Boeing. And this was a couple of years ago where Boeing was going, well, you know, we're here in Seattle, but, uh, you know, we've got a large footprint in Seattle. We'd like to reach out and have a large footprint in a few other states where we can have some power over a few other senators 
and members of Congress, and we can have some national diversity. So, you know, when we're trying to get another big defense contract, we'll have more support or whatever. I mean, whatever their reasons may have been. And so they said, who's going to give us the most money? And you had all these different cities go, oh, we'll give you 10 years of tax abatements. We'll give you five years. We'll give you 20 years. We'll give you, we'll give you a billion dollars. We'll give you land for free. We'll give you, you know, this is a scam. And it's a scam or a con that big corporations, whether they're Chinese or American, big corporations have been running on American communities in a big way since the 1980s. And I think we need to put a stop to it. Now, I have a, an idea that I borrowed from Bernie Sanders years ago on how to stop this, and that is that any state in which the state, county, or municipal governments, in which any government in that state has offered tax breaks to a corporation to open a location in that state, any state that does that loses their federal highway funds. Very straightforward stuff. Now, why would you do this? Because prior to Reaganism, prior to the 1980s, the way that states used to compete with each other for business, the way that municipalities and counties and, and yeah, even states would go to big companies and say, you know, you really should build your factory here, was based on infrastructure. It was real simple. Massachusetts would say, you know, we've got MIT, we've got Harvard, we've got the Metro, we've got a good public transportation system, we've got a great public education system, you can have good, well-paid, you know, you can have well-trained, very, very smart people working for you, and all you have to do is relocate yourself to Massachusetts. And companies did. And in California, they, you know, hey, we've got a free public university system. College is free in California. This is all prior to Reagan becoming governor. He blew that up in the mid-70s. Prior to that, California would say, well, actually, even through the 80s, because even when they made the colleges in California, Reagan was governor and then as president, even though college in California became, you know, kind of starting to get kind of expensive, it was still cheaper than pretty much anywhere else in the country. I mean, they had this entire statewide university system. And so California would say to companies, relocate here in California. We've got an educated workforce. Portland, Oregon would say to companies, you know, we have one of the most planned metropolitan areas in the United States. Pretty much everywhere in Portland, you can walk within a mile, you can walk to all your basic necessities. You can walk to a store where you can buy toilet paper or where you can buy groceries or, you know, what, fill, fill in the blanks. We've got a very livable city. There is more green in Portland relative to non-green space than in any other city in the United States and most cities in the world. And it caused a lot of companies to say, you know, hey, let's build in Portland. But then when Reagan came along and said, oh no, it's, you know, and this was, this was the beginning, by the way, of Walmart expanding out and abandoning Sam Walton's claim that it's 100% made in America. That used to be the Walmart slogan or sub-slogan abandoning that, and then starting this predatory practice of moving into areas where there was no large stores. There was a lot of local, vital, local, active local business. Moving into these communities, 
and eating alive the local businesses. And it, since the 80s, I mean, they started out doing that without any support, without any you know tax abatements and things like that. Now they've got this thing fine-tuned down to a down to the point where local communities are even helping them prevent unions. Now when a Walmart opens, they get free land, they get tax cuts, they get tax abatements. Every business that opens, it seems, as long as it's a giant corporation. If it's a small company, nah. I mean, maybe small companies, there was talk back 20, 30 years ago about, you know, getting small companies together. Let's all band together and gas for tax breaks. Eh, it never worked. The towns, the municipalities, they, they know that you're stuck here. You got a small company. But it used to be that cities competed with each other based on their infrastructure, their livability, you know, the, the quality of life, the quality of workers, the quality of infrastructure. And what that did prior to the 1980s, when communities competed with each other based on infrastructure, was it provided an incentive for all these communities to get richer, to get wealthier, because their infrastructure is part of their wealth. A city that has a good mass transit system, a city that has good high-speed broadband, this is what Chattanooga is doing. A city-owned Wi-Fi system that is literally the fastest in the country and the cheapest in the country, because just like with healthcare, you don't have a giant corporation like Comcast just sucking all the money off the top and not upgrading their equipment and stuff, because it's not as profitable. Meanwhile, I would add that it's very much time for us to say, you know, we've got to restore incentives in the United States, not just to build, not just to manufacture things in this country, but to hire Americans to do that. You know, Foxconn's whole business model is cheap labor. And we've known that all along, it's a Chinese company. What made anybody think that they were gonna actually hire people at a high wage in the United States? So how do you do this? This is the, I mean, this is the question that the, 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 the people who started this country faced. George Washington, when he was, you know, when uh, uh, Charles Thompson, the, the, who was the Secretary of the Continental Congress, you know, rode up to, to Washington's house on April 14th, 1789, and said, okay, sir, you're president. And Washington was like, okay, two things we need to do. Number one, I need to go say goodbye to my mother because I'm never going to see her alive again, which was true. She was in her 80s and dying. And then he said, and I also want to be inaugurated in a suit of clothing made in the United States which up until then had been illegal, up until the end of the revolution, because we were operating under British colonial law. And the British said, no, you may not manufacture clothing in the United States. You have to buy it from England. You have to support our workers. But on April 28, 1873, a guy named Daniel Hinsdale started a little Made in America clothing store in Hartford, Connecticut. And George Washington knew about it. And he said, go to Hinsdale, get me a suit made in America. So Charles Thompson took his measurements and continued his horseback ride to Connecticut. And when he came back to New York, which is where Washington was sworn in, George Washington took his oath of office wearing a brown suit. Hinsdale didn't have any American-made black uh, clothing, wearing a brown suit that was made in America. So then Washington turned to Hamilton and said, now, how do we do this? How, do, how, do we, how, can, how can we build manufacturing in this country? And Hamilton said, tariffs. It's very straightforward. He came out with this 11-point plan to rebuild America or to build America. Item number one, protecting duties or duties on those foreign articles which are the rivals of domestic ones. Number two, prohibition of rival articles or duties equivalent to prohibitions. Again, tariffs. 
Number three, prohibitions on the exportation of material manufacturers. In other words, stop sending our raw materials overseas. Stop shipping cotton to, to England and start using it here. Put an export tariff on it. Number four, pecuniary bounties. There are, there are certain things that we definitely want to manufacture here. For example, cannons. So we're going to actually give people an incentive to manufacture these things. Premiums. Same thing, the exemption of raw material of manufacture from duty. If you want to import raw materials to make manufactured goods, no tariffs. Drawbacks on the duties which are imposed when materials, you know, it's, these are all variations on the same thing. And this is what built America. Tariffs paid for 100% of our government, from the George Washington administration to the Civil War. It paid for two-thirds of our government from the Civil War to World War II. Now it pays for virtually nothing. So another question, with Donald Trump promoting tariffs, how do the Democrats reclaim their historic support for protectionist trade policies? Which, I, you know, I'm an advocate of. How do we do it? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up, as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve. Hey, Tom. Uh, you know, this, this outcome uh, with the man we have uh, sitting in that chair there in uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, this is the uh, culmination of the lazy, derelict, outmoded uh, electoral college and the cancerous Fox News and uh, Murdoch. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, I'm very afraid with this. I'm thinking this may be correct, this, that this is the end game, that they really want to get rid of all this stuff. And there are, the, all these people are so beholden to the, to the, to the cokes and the, 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 the dark money. It, 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 it's terrifying. And, and frankly, the Republican Party should now be classified as a terrorist organization because none of them are doing anything American that I see whatsoever. I wonder... If the people, the, the right-wing billionaires who fund Trump and the Republican Party and basically own them both, if those right-wing billionaires have been, you know, I mean, keep in mind, David Koch ran for president, vice president of the United States in 1980 on the Libertarian Party on a platform that included ending Social Security, ending Medicare, ending Medicaid, ending federal unemployment insurance, ending all federal and state support to, to education, privatize literally everything, including roads highways, airports, privatize it all, turn everything, everything into an opportunity for a billionaire to make money. That's what David Koch ran for president on. And, and I believe, from having read his works and, and his brother uh, Charles's work, that they actually believe this. They actually believe that if Americans really were forced to rely on themselves, we would ultimately just take a deep breath
breath and say, okay, screw it, I'm going to do it. And we'd reach down, grab our bootstraps, pull ourselves up, and go out there and get a good job and work for a billionaire and, and make America great again, right? They, I think they believe this. And, and they believe that things like public education, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, welfare, housing vouchers, food stamps, they believe that all these things make us lazy. All these things destroy our initiative. And therefore, I, I believe that that what they are essentially saying to Trump, and I think Trump shares this worldview, what they're essentially saying to Trump is shut it all down, take away the food stamps, take away the Section 8 housing, take away the, the, uh, the aided fam families with dependent children, take away the health care from the FBI, take, take all these benefits and things away. And the American people will, will become self-reliant. You're going to force the American people to become as noble and self-reliant as we are. Well, I'll tell you, Tom, if, if, if that's what they want and that's what they're going to go for and shoot for, um, you're going to see the stock market go to zero. Uh, the, the, the whole economy will totally collapse. Most Americans can't sustain, you know, $1,000 uh, uh, expense. Yeah. Currents. Yeah, no, I, Steve, I your, your diagnosis is accurate. Steve, thanks a lot for the call. Okay, back to taxes. I'm going to pick up your calls in just a second, but first I wanted to share this thought. This is how, uh, you know, our Democratic politicians, and I, I fully expect to hear Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Elizabeth Warren say something like this soon, and I would love to hear, you know, Kamala Harris and some of the others who are uh, serious contenders for the Democratic nomination start talking like this. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was confronted back in, this is 1936, about how he had raised the top tax rate up to 91%. And, well, I'll let him tell you. Here he is. A number of my friends who belong in the very high upper bracket have suggested to me on several occasions of late that if I am re-elected president, they will have to move to some other nation because of high taxes here. Now, I will miss them very much. There you go. I mean, this is just very straightforward stuff. Oh, man. David in Tyndall, South Dakota. Hey, David, what's up? I agree with you on, on some points about billionaires, but the Democrat Party wants to tax more wealth out of these billionaires while... They're the biggest drivers of our jobs that we have today. David, you have been listening to Fox News or Right Wing Hate Radio, I guarantee, because A, there's no such thing as a Democrat party. It's called the Democratic Party. Back in the 1950s, Joe McCarthy said, don't ever say Democratic. That sounds too nice and friendly. People like Democratic. Say Democrat with an emphasis on the rat. And Fox News has been loyal to that McCarthyite thing ever since, number one. Number two, number two, billionaires actually slow down the economy because they take money out of the economy and they put it in their bank accounts and in their hedge funds. You want to know who's driving the economy, David? It's poor people. People who make under $60,000 a year, under $40,000 a year, under $20,000 a year. People at the, at, at the, at the, in the median, the median income in the United States is around 40 grand for a household. It's around 27 grand for, a, for an individual. People who make less than that spend 100% of their income. And when they spend that money, that stimulates the economy. This idea that Ronald Reagan came up with to try to sell to rubes who listen to right-wing radio and things like that. And, and truth be told, you know, a lot of people bought this stuff for a lot of years. 
The, 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 the con job that Reagan came up with was telling people that, you know, it used to be called the horse and sparrow theory back in the 1880s, that if you give the horses more oats, they'll poop more undigested oats and the sparrows will get fatter because they get to eat the oats. Reagan called it trickle down. You know, you put more wine in the wine glass at the top and eventually it spills down off the table and people sitting on the floor get some. You know, the crumbs fall on us. It has been proven not to be the case. In fact, the biggest stimulus that, that we have had, if you look at the history of stimuluses in the United States, is typically when you, do, when you dial back the Social Security tax, because that's a tax that even if you only make $5,000 a year, you pay taxes on all your income. And, and uh, the way that Obama got us out of, the, out of the Bush Depression in 2009 was by pausing the Social Security tax, or at least 2% of it, for either a year or two years. So it's working people, David, who stimulate the economy, who drive the economy, who create something called demand. It's called aggregate demand, and it's also known as wages. It's wages that drive the economy, not the savings of billionaires, David. Well, it's the billionaires that are hiring right now. No, nope, not true. Actually, you have jobs. it's not true, David. Uh, you know, I'm not a billionaire. Jobs, I'm hiring no, people. David, if, if you actually talk to a real economist, not, not to somebody who plays one on Fox News, what you will find, which is owned by a billionaire, by the way, which is why he wants you to think so favorably of billionaires. Rupert Murdoch owns Fox News and, and you know, supervises the programming of it. But if you talk to an actual economist, you will find that the majority of job growth in the United States is small businesses. None of them are owned by billionaires. None of them. And by and large, even if you say, oh, well, Walmart's creating jobs. Well, the Walton family, who is worth you know, over $100 billion, talking about billionaires, they do absolutely nothing with Walmart. They just sit around and wait for the dividend check to come in the mail. The same thing with most billionaires in the United States. Their principal occupation is sitting around waiting, you know, sitting around the pool on their butt waiting for the dividend check to arrive. That doesn't stimulate anything in the economy, David. Nothing. Well, they do. Okay. All right. David, thank you for the call. Good luck. Don in Quitman, Texas. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. Good morning. Uh, just like to make a comment about billionaires, please. Mm -hmm. um, instead of referring to these people as billionaires, maybe you should refer to them as parasites who happen to be billionaires. Or just billionaire parasites. Yeah, I mean, you know, not all billionaires are not necessarily bad you think of them like you know they're like ticks on the body of of the nation and they're and they're and their bodies have swollen they got they all swollen up and engorged with all this blood that they've been sucking out of us and right. and and they're and and now they're going more 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 and it's no other purpose than to kill the host and that's what they're doing they're killing the united states basically they're killing our country yeah yeah, and you know the the thing about parasites. I mean, parasites can be actually useful. Uh, we know that some parasites, some some species that we thought were parasites, are actually symbiotes. You know, hookworms, for example, actually, yeah. you know, modulate your immune system and prevent you from getting autoimmune diseases and disorders, and and reduce things like asthma and stuff like that. But um, on the other hand, if you get too many. They will kill you because they consume some of your blood. You know, it's, it's like if you so you know parasites in small quantities. We can all live with that, right? Uh -huh. uh, you know, but parasites in large quantities, parasites who are sucking really hard. No, you're absolutely right, Don. It will kill the host. Don, thanks for the call. Mikael in uh, Seattle. Am I saying your name right? Yeah, it's Mikael. Oh, Mikael. I'm sorry. Hey, Mikael. What's up? Hey, thanks for all of your hard work. Um, Thank you. 
I'm in Seattle, and I have some um, thoughts about Howard Schultz while we're on the topic of looking into his uh, history. Oh, he's local for you, isn't he? He is, yeah. He's very well known. I've been on the fence and trying to gather information about him because he does a lot with his foundation here locally Mm -hmm. of good. Um, I have two main complaints that I wanted to share. The first, there was an article this morning in the Seattle Times about his voting record. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, he has not been politically engaged um, as far as voting goes. He has voted in 11 of the last 38 elections. Right, he missed 27 of them. Um, but, but he has poured money into politicians' pockets, hasn't he? Maybe he thinks that's the same thing as voting. <laughs> Hard to say. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, the other issue that I wanted to point out, and this is, this is a, a different topic and could um, use a lot more exploration, but I've watched him remodel, or I've watched Starbucks do several remodels locally, and I feel like there's a lot of greenwashing involved generally mm-hmm. in the company. They're, they're somewhat viewed as progressive, but as you pointed out earlier, um, they've uh, not allowed unionization of their employees. Um, my complaint when I observe the remodeling is that they have taken... Um, recycling centers out as part of their remodel. Hmm. And I know there are lots of issues with recycling currently, but it just seems like a huge step backwards. And the employees are frank. We don't recycle at this location anymore. Um, Wow. Mikkel, here's what gets me about Starbucks. Starbucks is based on and is pursuing a predatory business model. Basically, what Starbucks has successfully done is put out of business thousands of small coffee shops all across the country. Now, you could say that they invented or they created the, uh, you know, a market and to that you know, tip of the hat and all that kind of thing. But because of the way that the monopoly laws, the enforcement of the monopoly laws changed in 1982 and Reagan decided that he wasn't going to enforce monopoly laws anymore or anti-monopoly laws, because of that, these big companies like you know McDonald's and Burger King and and Starbucks and uh, you know fill in the blanks, they have wiped out and Walmart is the is the poster child for this. They have wiped out local businesses. If Walmart comes into a community, over a hundred local businesses will go out of business. I don't know if Starbucks has intentionally targeted coffee shops when when they're expanding. If they come to Portland and they look around and go, oh, where's the coffee shop? Oh, there's a successful one here and there's a successful one over here. We'll put our Starbucks two blocks away and take them down. I don't know if they pursued that strategy, but that's been the the effect, the impact. This is a predatory business model, and we're congratulating Howard Schultz on being the biggest predator, on being the giant shark who ate all the, the smaller and medium-sized fish. And I don't think that that's praiseworthy frankly, and I think that we need to go back to a business model that we had in the United States prior to 1982 that encouraged small local businesses. If you go back to the 19, early 1960s, and, and you know, I'm the old fart here, I remember this, I was a little kid, you know, I was like 8, 10 years old, watching Route 66, Marty, Marty Milner and George Maharis, these two guys who played um, uh, Biff and, and Ted or something like that. And they drove this car across the United States. This was before the interstate highway system. They drove this car from the East Coast to the West Coast. Their destination, I think, was Hollywood. And every week they'd be in a different small town and they'd have their adventure in that town. You know, And it's a fascinating. You can watch them on Netflix uh, or, or uh, the Amazon or whatever. I mean, you can watch it online. I watched one a little while ago just 
to, if, was my memory of that accurate? Accurate, and it was. And they come into town, and the bank is named after the town, and the restaurant is named after the town, and the hotel, you know, everything is locally owned. And you, and you knew where you were, because every town had its own character, its own, its own culture, its own sense. And today, you could, be, you could jump out of an airplane at 60,000 feet and just land in any random part of America. And all you would see is Olive Gardens and Starbucks and, and Walmart, and you'd have no idea where the hell you are. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of Costco. It came into a town here in Washington, and suddenly everybody started buying their gas there, like major, major lines to save a couple cents. Yep. And there just seems to be no awareness that what it's doing to the other gas stations. Do we want a society where we only have big, you know, corporate gas stations? Yeah. Well, although that's largely what we have right now. Because and and you know, back in the '60s and '70s, when well. gas was 25 cents a gallon, what would happen is you'd have four gas stations on a corner. You'd have a Shell, a Standard, an Exxon, and a and a Gulf. You know, and and they would compete with each other until they had all until three of them had gone had been driven out of business. And, you know, again, that predatory business model. Now, I have to move along, but thank you for the call and, and for bringing up and, and sharing your Seattle perspective on all this with us. Phil in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Phil, your thoughts on billionaires? Well, the only thing I was thinking of, is it Schwartz or Schultz? Schwartz, right? The CEO? Yeah, Howard Schwartz. Yeah. Well, he could have started by paying people, uh, you know, $17, $18, $20 an hour instead of starting them at 10 and have them go to 12 or 13. And and the fact is that Starbucks is considered a pretty uh, progressive company for its workers. But you, if you want to start somewhere, start by Schultz. paying people a living wage. Yeah, it's uh, Howard Schultz, by the way. Yeah, well, I would, I would go beyond that, Phil. Uh, Howard has not allowed his workers to unionize. Of course. So. Couldn't have that, you know, couldn't have that. No, I get it completely. Yeah. It, just one company, but it really is a microcosm of even, of even the best companies in this country don't allow their workers to make decent wages. Yeah. I, you know, what was amazing to me, Phil, I, I watched the interview with him with uh, Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe yesterday, and, 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 and Schwartz was saying, Schultz? Schwartz? Schultz. Howard Schultz was saying, <laughs> sorry, was saying, I grew up in the projects in New York, and I was poor, and I worked my way up to being a billionaire. And why? And the, the, the implicit message was, why don't people love me for that? He, you know, he said, isn't that the American dream? And I'm, and I'm yelling at the TV. I'm going, no, that's not the American dream. The vast majority of Americans will never have that available to them. The American dream is what my dad had, which is you have a decent yeah. job that you work for 40 hours a week, and you earn enough money to buy a new car every two years to buy a home to raise your your four kids put them through school have a vacation and have a pension when you retire and my dad did that in a tool and die shop that's the american dream how howard schwartz schultz whatever his name is doesn't even understand the american dream he thinks the american dream is to become a billionaire sorry we can't identify with that you know i i'm 68 uh, years old and i've and every day feel grateful that i was lucky enough to Oh, yeah, there's this huge obligation, Phil, that all of us who are over 50, basically, have to share with people who are under, in particular, under 30, of, yeah. hey, let me tell you how America actually can work, because it did. Don't you just love it when something that's already amazing gets better? Well, that's the case with the X chair. The makers have taken what is arguably the most comfortable and supportive office chair in the world and made it even better 
by introducing wider seats in the X3 and X4 models of the X chair. That means extra support for those of us with wider bases. The good people at X chair are constantly innovating to help improve your working comfort and productivity. And now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com, or call 1-844-4X chair. X chair comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com. Continuing the conversation about economics broadly, Dr. Richard Wolf is with us, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work. Democracyatwork.info is the website. He's the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. R.D. Wolf with 2Fs.com, also his other website. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf, as in Professor Wolf. Uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So I noticed that when the Fed started tightening the money supplies, started raising interest rates about a year ago or so, that the stock market slowed down and then kind of went into reverse. Donald Trump comes out and says, this is all because the Fed isn't, is raising interest rates and Chairman Powell needs to grovel at my feet and stop this. And then over the last couple of weeks, uh, Chairman Powell came out and used some very specific language here, said, and I quote, we are going to be patient about interest rate increases. And also, he says, we're going to remove forward guidance. In other words, we're going to stop explicitly signaling that rate increases are coming. And some are reading this as him saying that, in fact, there will be no more rate increases, at least for a couple of years, at least as long as Donald Trump is president, which, of course, is what Trump wants. A, is that you know, a reasonable assessment of what's going on? B, if the Fed doesn't raise interest rates above 2%, doesn't that knock out our ability, the Fed's ability anyway, to deal with a serious recession, which is generally considered inevitable, and see if so, is this a naked political cave on the part of Powell to Trump, and how will that play politically? I mean, if he can keep the stock market up until Trump runs for re-election, does that mean that right after that we're going to see the world's worst crash as soon as a Democrat becomes president in 2020? I realize there's a lot to unpack there, Dr. Wolf, but go for it, please. All right, I will try. Number one, yes, you're absolutely right that the purpose of slowing down the increase in rates or being patient, if that means no more rates, is caving in. But it is not just caving in to uh, President Trump, although it's partly that. It's also caving in to pressure from the business community and particularly from the biggest businesses whose stocks trade on the market. Because as you rightly pointed out, the minute the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates to deal with the enormous overhang of new money pumped into the economy to offset the 2008 crash, the minute the interest rates started going up, the stock market started having problems. And the reason for that, people should understand, is that big players in the stock market use borrowed money. They have to pay interest on that money, and if it becomes more expensive to borrow the money, which is what rising interest rates mean, they will not play in the stock market because the risk becomes too expensive relative to the chances of gain. 
So it was caving in both to the president and to big business and the stock market that they put the brakes on the rising interest rates that they had been raising gently, but for a, a year, a year and a half now. Add to that the slowing global economy, particularly big problems in Europe and now significant slowdown in China, partly, by the way, also the result of the Trump administration. And you have enough negative factors that raising interest rates would add to the risks of a recession or make a recession that happens anyway even worse. So if you put all those factors together, that was more than enough to get Mr. Powell and the members of the board, of the Federal Reserve Board, to cave in. That's the first part. Okay. The second part is it is very good news for Mr. Trump, because if you raise interest rates, you make it more expensive to use your credit card, to buy a home with a mortgage, to buy a car with your payments. And so the fact that they raised them was slowing all those markets down, and that would hurt people's pocketbooks, and they would blame the president, as people often do. So it's not good for him to have the rising rates. It's much better for him either to stop the rise or to get the rates to come down. And finally, you are also right. I guess you get an A today, Tom. Uh, you. you are also right to foresee that you're stalling things off, accumulating debts that people cannot pay sets the basis for a humongous crash once the election is over, once the pressure is off, etc., etc. One of the reasons the Federal Reserve over the last year and a half raised interest rates, which they said, was because they noticed that the low interest rates they had had since 2008 had led governments and businesses to borrow historically unprecedented amounts of money and creating a great deal of risk that a downturn would lead to a cascade of unpaid borrowing and to stop that and to now give another two years of a free ride at low interest rate does indeed and should make people much more nervous than they even were when the current upswing in interest rates was begun a year and a half ago. So we're looking at the crash of 2020 being one of epic proportions if all of this uh, speculation and math and whatnot is right. That's right. And it means you're facing again one of the many dysfunctional aspects of how we run American capitalism. We create a president and a political party whose horizon is the next election and who will, as we have seen over and over again, subordinate longer-term conditions for the economy and for the mass of people to the short-term prospects of their electoral strategy. That is a very dangerous way to run your society. And while it can get you you know, over the difficulty this time and that time, it's only a matter of time before this happens in a way that can't be fixed afterwards, or at least not without massive suffering, even exceeding what we saw in the wake of 2008. Amazing. These guys are like, they're so playing with fire. Meanwhile, Donald Trump invited Herman Cain to come by. There are two seats open on the Fed, uh, for the National Fed Board. Apparently, he's considering Herman Cain for one of those. Your thoughts? Well, you know, given the kinds of appointments Mr. Trump has already made, ending up a couple of weeks ago 
with Mr. Abrams on the Venezuela issue, you, you have to shake your head in utter disbelief. Not only is there no meritocracy involved, and there never was much, but now it's not only negative, it boggles the mind that a person capable of saying the things we know that man said would be given a position of that sort. I guess it's, again, loyalty to Mr. Trump being a useful tool for whatever comes to his Twitter mind, that's what this is about. But what it will do is further diminish the respect and the seriousness with which people did for a while take the statements of the Federal Reserve, which gave a certain logic. You know, Americans don't like planning, but the statements of the Federal Reserve were, of course, a kind of planning. They were signaling to the business community what the interest rate, what the money situation will be. That's what a planning government would do anyway. And we're now going to diminish the relevance and the respect of the planning that we do, which makes us even more chaotic as an economy than we already were. Finally, Professor Wolf, I'm curious your thoughts on the 2% wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren has proposed on all wealth over $50 million. We have a precedent in this country for having a wealth tax. Also, the proposal of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of a 70% top marginal tax rate on income over $10 million a year. Well, you know, let's unpack that just very briefly. As you correctly said in your prior remarks, the property tax in this country is an ethical abomination. We tax land, we tax homes, we tax automobiles, we even tax some business inventories. But if you hold your wealth, not in those forms, which are the forms that middle and low income people have property, if they have any property at all. But if you tax that and you don't tax stocks and bonds, which is how the rich people in this country hold the bulk of their property, then your property tax is discriminatory. It's favoring the richest amongst us and penalizing everybody else. It is outrageous that the property tax has only been applied to what is called in economics tangible property, stuff you can touch and feel, and not to the financial property, stocks, bonds, and things that are represented by pieces of paper. Had we applied the same property tax rates that we now impose on every community in this country's land and homes and cars, had we applied that to the stocks and bonds property held by the top 10% of our people, there would be no government deficit even in the situation of fixing the crash of 2008. It is an outrage beyond words. Number two, there is precedent. I did research myself on the history of property taxes in Connecticut, which are among the highest in the United States. And it turned out, surprise, surprise, that in the earliest days of this state of Connecticut, the first property tax imposed was a tax on shares of stock in a canal linking New Haven, Connecticut with Hartford, Connecticut, the capital. So we have in our history, indeed, in many states of the United States, we have had property taxes imposed on intangible property, stocks and bonds. So this is not a new thing. It's not without precedent. It has existed in the United States. And it is only massive a prevention of people grasping this reality that has allowed rich people to impose a property tax on everybody else and exempt themselves. It is really extraordinary. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. That was a brilliant analysis, Dr. Richard Wolf. Thanks so much for being with us. All right, Tom. Look forward to the next time. Thanks. Great talking to you. Democracyatwork.info. Yesterday, I went off on this long rant about property taxes. As long as you have property tax, nobody actually owns their land, number one. And number two, that a property tax is a wealth tax. So we do have a wealth tax in the United States. Howard Schultz says, oh, wealth tax, are you kidding? It's crazy. And what I was saying is, no, in fact, we do have a wealth tax. It's called a property tax. And it's mostly paid by the middle class. Because if you own a house, and in 25 states, if you own a car, every year you pay a tax based on the value of it. That's a tax on wealth. And then Trollbuster99 over on Democratic Underground posted a post saying kind of the same thing. Every year I have to pay 2% in property tax. It's not an income tax, it's a property tax, and property is a form of static wealth. Spot on. I don't know if this is a case of great minds think alike or if he heard my rant, but I'm so pleased that it's getting out there. This is why I do this. <laughs> I want to get the message out. So that post, it's, it was over, it's over the top of DU right now. It's titled, Note to Bloomberg, like a lot of people, I own a house and every year I have to pay. You know, retweet it. Post it on Facebook. I mean, this guy really boiled it down really, really well. And in fact, added to it. He said, you know, and you call us socialist? You want to see true capitalism, raw capitalism, naked capitalism, unregulated capitalism? Look at Russia. Wow. Tip of the hat to you. Howard Schultz is saying that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is an extreme leftist and that he is in the center, that he represents the center. And I, this was so amazing. Nick Hanauer, who's been a guest on this program a number of times. Nick Hanauer is a member of the Democratic Alliance, Democracy Alliance. And he's a multimillionaire. I'm not sure if he's quite a billionaire, but he's worth a hell of a lot of money. And he started this thing called Patriotic Millionaires. And he knows Howard Schultz, you know, billionaires know each other. And so on MSNBC, they asked him, you know, what do you think about what Howard Schultz is saying? And he said, and I quote, what Howard Schultz represents, the centrism he represents is trickle down economics, tax cuts for rich people, deregulation for powerful people, wage suppression and benefit cuts for everyone else without the overt racism. He is not the centrist. AOC is the centrist. And he says, and I think one of her advantages, this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of her advantages is that she's young enough not to be captured by the neoliberal lies that have framed so much of our politics. By the way, in both the Democratic and Republican parties, or the Republican and Democratic parties. And he is so right. I mean, we just saw legislation introduced to increase Social Security. Consider just 10 years ago, Barack Obama was considering cutting Social Security. There has been a complete change in terms of conventional wisdom inside the Democratic Party. And I think that we have all played a part in this. We have all played a role in this. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background on my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. 
ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. James in Mineola, Texas. Hey, James, it says that uh, you want to disagree with me about something? Yes, because you're talking about that property tax on your car, right? Because of the value yes. of your car. I yes. was in the military and owned a, a sports car. Uh, it was like an 88 Conquest. Mm -hmm. But the thing to me was making me mad is that I didn't have a lot of money. The thing that makes me mad is that you have four tires and I have four tires. What does it matter after that? And yeah, my, my, my point, James, on, is if in the 25 states where there's a tax on cars and in the 50 states where there's a tax on homes, you know, these are property taxes, that what these are is actually wealth taxes. Uh, now, I'm not speaking in favor or against that. Well, actually, I am. I'm speaking against them. You should be able to own your car. You should be able to own your home and not have to pay a tax on it every year unless you're fabulously rich. But the argument that Howard Schultz is making is that people who are talking about taxing wealth, this is Elizabeth Warren's proposal, that every year everybody who has more than $50 million pays 2% of whatever they own into the government as a tax. This will generate a trillion dollars. This will fund all kinds of government programs. It'll give us free college education for everybody. I mean, just all kinds of cool stuff comes out of this. And the billionaires are revolting. They're saying, how dare you talk about taking 2% of everything over 50 million? And Elizabeth Warren is like, what, you can't live on 50 million bucks? Or you know, have 50 million plus 98% of everything else you've got? No, we can't live on it. And all I'm saying is that, you know, and they're saying wealth taxes are un-American. Who, who would in America would ever want a wealth tax? And I'm saying, wait a minute, James is paying a wealth tax on his car. I'm paying a wealth tax on my home. You know, why is it only the middle class has to pay a wealth tax? James, I suspect we are agreeing with each other. Well, not at all, because like I said, I have 75 acres in Lone Oak, Texas. I've had it for, I mean, the family has had it. I'm fifth generation to have this property. And remember, we're descendants of slavery, all right? And they want to tell me now, it doesn't have any running water. There's no houses on there or anything like that. But now you have to have a certain amount of cows in order to get a tax break. You have to have a certain amount of goats, a certain amount of chickens to get a tax break. Yeah. How can you make me go into a business that I don't want to go into? No, I'm agreeing with you, James. I'm saying you shouldn't be paying property tax to begin with. Oh. That we need to find a different way to fund schools. The, the whole you know, property tax funding of schools is why poor schools happen in poor areas and good schools happen in rich areas. That's nuts. Well, our school tax, I tell you right now, ours are going to be really, really high because I'm, I know you're not going to like this because we let so many illegal immigrants go to our school and we had to pay for that. We had to make that money up. And we in, shouldn't in be paying for that. And, and so on. Yeah. And you're going to have more of that in low income areas that have high, high Hispanic populations. That shouldn't mean that the people who live in those areas who are U.S. citizens are getting crappy schools. We need to figure out a different way to fund our schools. I can't believe that. Yeah, I mean, you know, this just makes sense. It's like we should be hitting people who have assets over a million dollars with a 2% tax every year on their wealth. I agree with Elizabeth Warren. And we could do away with the property tax. So if we're going to have a wealth tax in the United States, and we already do, it's crazy that you with your house and your car are paying a tax, which is funding the local community, and rich people are not. 
with the, all of their assets, all of their wealth. You know, Howard Schultz gets to have his, his giant money bin where he can dive into his pile of gold doubloons and bathe himself in gold, and he doesn't have to pay any tax on that at all. And you and I have every year have to pay a tax on our homes or on our property or on your land in Texas. James, I agree with you. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the call. I hope he didn't try to get to the front of the line by just saying I disagree. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think he misunderstood what I was saying. So I hope I'm really clear now. Everybody, we need a wealth tax in the United States on things beyond just James's car and my home. We need to figure out how to do this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch. Check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. So let's check in with Bob Ney at Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and loving what you do. Ellen Ratner's new book on the line with us, the author of Sideswiped, the true story of what happens in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, former Congressman Bob Ney. Bob, welcome back to the program. What's going on in the world today? Well, thank you, Tom. Before I get to the news, can I make one comment about Wilbur Ross? Yeah. He had a company called the ICG, International Coal Group. And he stripped first $267 million in personal windfall out of the health care benefits of some steel workers. Wow. Uh, and I, as you know, I'm from the Appalachia area and had a district down there in the 18th Congressional right. Well, he also acquired the Sago Mine, and it was 100, 100 miles east of Charleston, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And it was a non-union operation that racked up uh, safety violations from federal inspectors, 208 in 2005 alone. And then that year, the roof of the mine collapsed 20 times, and the workers at Sago were injured three times as often as workers in any other coal mine in America. He claimed not to be part of the management group and later admitted he was aware of the violations and waived them. Mm. Then in January uh, of the next year, methane ignited uh, in the mine. And so I just wanted to mention that. There is what that caller talked about. There's yeah. extreme details that so are that, horrific. So that Sago mine disaster that, that I, you know, I have a, a recollection of, uh, a whole bunch of miners died, didn't they? That, that was yeah. in a mine owned by Wilbur Ross? He, he, was, yeah, he was part of what was called the, and see, this has never had attention. We know from the coal area because, you know, Trump and Hillary Clinton and coal, et cetera. Yeah. But he had $1.2 billion in coal assets through his company called the International Coal Group. And one of his company, ICG's acquisitions, was the Sago Mine. Amazing. He, he, was, he was involved in that acquisition. And a lot of people just don't know those dots are deeply connected. Your caller's talking about him. And he, he claimed to not be part of the operating management of Sago, although they had the acquisition of it. He later admitted publicly he was aware of the violations, and he waived them, 208 in 2005 alone. That's astonishing. That's astonishing. Then they this had is the methane. It, it ignited a deep explosion. It instantly killed a worker, stranded a dozen others, and uh, it was about two miles from the mouth of the mine. It had carbon dioxide. It was uh, filled with it. 
Right, this is where they had uh, to drill, so, a, drill a hole down and, and, yeah, and free I, the I miners. Mean, I just wanted to say. So this is all Wilbur Ross's dollars, fault. Yeah, we're, we're trying to figure out who's Ross. the worst member of the cabinet. Is it, well, you know, is, is it the, the former oil lobbyist who's now running Interior? Is it the former coal lobbyist who's now running the EPA? Is it, uh, you know, the, the uh, lobbyist for private schools, Betsy DeVos, who in her home state of Michigan now, more than half the schools in Michigan are, are charter schools. She's destroyed public education in Michigan. Uh, is it David Bernhardt, the... Uh, the, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's tough. Or I'm is it Alex Azar? The, the, yeah. I'm sorry, Alex Azar, the drug company lobbyist who's running Health and Human right. Services. I mean, you got four or five lobbyists in the Trump cabinet. It's insane. Anyhow, Bob, what's going on in the world? Oh, yes, sir. Um, well, uh, you know, I think the real story of the day is the fact that, you know, the president is angry, and it's almost as if the head of the intelligence agencies that serve in his cabinet were hand-selected by Nancy Pelosi and not by him, if you would see how he's acting on right. this, you know, his anger level. Uh, you know, he selected them. They are his cabinet uh, officials. And after the testimony, of course, uh, with uh, Dan Coats is the one that he was most angry about. And if you look at the ISIS statement that the president said on December 19th of last year that the U.S. troops would withdraw from Syria, and then President Trump declared that, quote, we've won against ISIS, we've beaten them, and we've beaten them badly, that yet, of course, uh, in the testimony, Coates said, uh, quote, ISIS is intent on resurging and still commands uh, thousands of fighters in Iraq and Syria. But I think the most telling disagreement with the president is what Coates said about uh, Iran, because, of course, the president said that it's clear now, this was last year. Uh, it's clear that we cannot prevent an Iranian nuclear bomb under the decaying and rotten structure of the current agreement, meaning President Obama, of course, in right. the Iran nuclear deal, which President Trump undid, which, of course, his original first Secretary of State, uh, Tillerson, did not want to undo. And then he got rid of him, then he undid the deal. Right. And so on Tuesday, it was testified by Coates, quote, we do not believe Iran is currently undertaking the key activities we judge necessary to produce a nuclear device. And so I think that the reason this is the most telling, and, and you know, we've been talking to some people in D.C. about this, uh, and even some conservative Republican senators are coming out saying the president ought to listen to his intel people. And, of course, Chuck Schumer made the comment that he needs an intervention by his, mm. you know, his uh, intel directors and his intel chiefs. I think he does. And, 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 yeah, and because, especially with the Iran deal, because, as we know, John Bolton has publicly wanted to nuke Iran, then he had his um, really ridiculous little incident this week where he held his notepad up accidentally so that the press corps could see that, you know, it says send 5,000 troops to Colombia. You know, right. it's just completely staged. So, yeah. Uh, the disagreement is telling, though, that the President of the United States doesn't agree with any of his intel chiefs. Yeah, no. and at the same time, he's surrounding himself with crazies like, you know, Bolton and Pompeo, guys who have a sure. long history of just extremist pro war comments. It's insane. Absolutely. Bob Ney, author of Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Nancy in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Hey, Nancy, what's up? Hi, Tom. I uh, love your show. Thank you. And uh, on the subject of the property tax, I wanted to also point out that most people don't own their home outright, so they're paying this tax on debt. Yeah, actually, it's, it's, it's even worse. I mean, if you own a home that's worth $100,000 and you have a $90,000 mortgage on it, 
and the property tax on that house is, say, $1,000 a year, 1%, you're paying actually $1,000 a year on an equity of $10,000. So you're functionally paying a 10% wealth tax. That is, the wealth that you have, wealth that the bank has is $90,000. The wealth that you have is $10,000. You pay $1,000 a year in property tax on that, and you're paying a 10% wealth tax. That's insane. You're right, Nancy. You're absolutely right. Well, thank you. That's brilliant. I, you know, I, I, this is great. We're crowdsourcing this information. Nancy, thank you so much. Thank you for the call. George in Chicago. Hey, George, what's up? Thanks for listening to Chicago's Hi, Progressive Tom. Talk. A couple of observations on Foxconn. Mm-hmm. First, uh, circa 1913, the United States and Canada ratified a treaty called the Great Lakes Compact, which forbids the diversion of water out of the Great Lakes beyond the Great Lakes Basin. It's not readily apparent because the elevation is not real high. But there is a continental divide that surrounds the Great Lakes, high ground that's only six to eight feet in some places and maybe higher in other places. But it's a result of the weight of the water pushing down the landscape and then the perimeter rises. Mm -hmm. And so any rain that falls in the Great Lakes ends up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and if it falls to the south or west, it ends up in the Gulf of Mexico. The point being is that the Great Lakes uh, are slow to recharge, and so diversion of large amounts of water could compromise navigation and water supplies and a number of other things. Now, the Foxconn plant is in violation of the spirit, if not the technical language of the treaty, by virtue of the fact that it is beyond the edge of the Great Lakes Basin, but they were allowed to tie into the water supply of a community that's adjacent to Lake Michigan, Hmm. and to use their allotment of, of uh, Lake Michigan water. Is this, uh, uh, George, is this blown up by the fact that Foxconn is no longer going to build a factory there? All the groundwork for this was dishonest from the beginning. Ah. That they're going to violate a treaty that's been in, in, in effect for over 100 years, in addition to which uh, Chinese companies, and Foxconn in particular, have a bad reputation when it comes to pollution and release of toxic materials. Yeah. And here in the Chicago area, we've had bad experiences with cryptosporidium coming down from the Milwaukee and Wisconsin area. It's from the agricultural waste runoff from the fields, and it's very difficult for the freshwater system to purify. And so we're, we were expecting more toxic releases if this might get into full operation. Now, hopefully with a Democratic governor and Democratic legislatures in the future, they can reverse this. Yeah, hopefully. George, I got to run. Thank you for the call, and thanks for the heads up on that. I was unaware of the treaty. But it doesn't surprise me that the whole Foxconn thing was fraudulent from the get-go. It was a Scott Walker, Donald Trump project. What do you expect? Thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. We can't just sit around. Yeah, there's an election coming. It's not enough to just vote. You've got to get engaged. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 